We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Paul McGuinness. If you did enjoy it, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a positive review on your listening platform with your thoughts. For today's episode, we're fortunate to have somebody who is absolutely at the top of their sport. This episode was actually recorded a week before he won a fourth grand final in as many years, winning the Harry Sunderland Trophy awarded to the player of the match in the grand final. So without further ado, here is a snippet of what to expect today. When body and mind are aligned, it's um, that's when you're at your best. It provides that freedom. It allows you to react to everything. You know, overthinking things generally. You know, we talk about it a lot. Your best games are the ones when things just seem to happen and there's that sense of flow. You know, people have got different abilities on the field, but I think there's certain things within sport that you're kind of non-negotiables and they've got to be hard work and, and honesty for the and unselfish acts for the group. I think are the ones that if I ever wanted someone else to describe me out. I want it to be them words. I want it to be the ones that are a reflection of the ones that I appreciate in people. We're excited to welcome Johnny Lomax onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Johnny is one of Rugby League's top players and will go down as one of St. Helens Rugby League Club's best ever players. The Maverick halfback hasn't had an easy journey to the top, however, suffering a life-threatening injury and several career-threatening injuries before he reached his peak. His journey is one of persistence and perseverance, and regardless of what sport you follow or what you do, there is absolutely something from this episode that you can take from. Hey, Johnny. For every single guest that comes on Golders podcast, we always ask one question. And the first question that we ask is, to us, Goldust is sprinkling, sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? Uh, I suppose it's probably that little bit of something special. I think, it's some, to me, it's that little bit of something special that isn't quite easy to catch up the eye. Uh, it's that little bit extra. It's not just, you know, something's good because it's big. It's that little bit of extra detail, the little subtlety that just makes it that little bit more. But it kind of can also be undersold as well. I think it's the it's the little things that add up. Well, we'll we'll touch on. It's funny you say that because we'll touch on a little bit of that in terms of your career and and how your career has gone to date. But obviously, as a as a professional rugby league player and a very successful one. You've had a, a long and illustrious career already, but stripping it back to when you first started playing rugby, how did it begin and, and who were the key people that, that really ignited and influenced your passion? Oh, I started playing when I was probably five years old, um, largely down to because of my dad, really. It was my dad that took me down to what was his amateur club when he played at Oral St. James. Um, and before that, it was football, like most English kids start out, English lads start out. It's always football first. And I kind of played them alongside each other for a little bit. Um, until rugby, probably, you know, I was fortunate to meet a good bunch of friends and a good group of lads that I played with from being five years old to eventually up until 16 years old, all the way through. Um, and we stuck that core group together. And it was probably that, that, you know, the friendships that I made, uh, that made me stick the rugby out. And probably just because it, 
it suited me. Um, as a kid, I was pretty quick and elusive and, you know, it was just like a big game of tag, really, rugby. Um, that's what, what it was. Um, but, yeah, going back to the, the key influencers, obviously my dad was the large large one, really, for me. Um, he was the person that took me down. I initially played for the, the year above, um, obviously, because it started at under sevens, but because I was a, I started at five years old, I was playing for the year above. And then when we eventually dropped down to, to our own year, as I said, there was a good group of us that did that. Um, and it was my dad that took on the coaching role from from that point. Um, and, you know, he's that person that I still now regularly offload on and kind of give him a quick call, ask him a few his opinions because I know that he'll always give me the truth. Um, he won't sugarcoat anything. And, he'll, you know, I really appreciate that. And as I said, he's been the key influencer from being five years old up until having just turned 32. So dads do come in for some use then? <laughs> yeah, he def- definitely does. We will actually delve into uh, a little bit more about that founding formative years when you were in around your dad, because uh, I'm sure there'll be a question that we have for that. But there are many positives that, that we'll touch on here, Johnny. As David's already alluded to, you've, got a, you've already had a, a very successful and illustrious career in rugby league. But there were some been some big disappointments too. And at the age of 14, you, you suffered a life-threatening head injury, which resulted in you having, a, having surgery for 10 hours and being told afterwards you wouldn't play rugby league again. What was that period like for you? And what was it that kept you going? Oh, yeah. You know, for me, um, I clashed heads five days before um, and I had concussive symptoms and, you know, kind of was feeling pretty sore. And that was probably the main thing for me, just being a bit sore. Um, went to the hospital, got cleared, and it was probably the five days afterwards that eventually I got rushed into the hospital. And there I went, had the surgery. And then obviously being a young lad and being naive at 14 years old, I thought, problem's fixed and I'm ready to go again. Um, little did I know that that was, wasn't to be the case, really. Um, you know, I was initially told that I wasn't allowed to play again, which being a 14-year-old petulant child, um, pulled my face about, ignored the doctors that had just saved my life and, you know, given my hard time. And probably that's how it was for me. Um, the lack of understanding was probably something that really helped me. And in terms of, you know, what the period was like for me, nowhere near as bad as it was for my, for my parents and my sister and, you know, my, my family around me. You know, they were the ones that had to see me suffering initially when I was having the the extradural hemorrhage that eventually developed from the initial contact that fractured my skull and caused the artery to bleed out. They were the ones that my dad carried me downstairs. My mum, thankfully being a nurse, wasn't happy with me the entire five days, so she never let me out of her sight. Again, petulant child wouldn't let me go go to the cinema with my mates on the Sunday night. And thankfully, you know, it was for the best um, as that night I had burning sensation in my head. So put it, put it under a cold tap. It was pain that I've never had like it or since um, until eventually couldn't really stand up anymore. Um, so I put the wet towel on my head. Mum came up, obviously ring the ambulance. Dad carried me downstairs. And as I said, the last thing I remember was 
throwing up in the back of the ambulance and then waking up in the bed all fixed I suppose in my eyes um, but no it was them that then had to suffer the the 10 hour surgery that went on and to be told that you know I was 50-50 whether I'd get through it and if I did didn't know what quality of life I'd have so as I say for me I, I probably had it the easiest out of everyone I think something that I learned throughout my career is the physical side side of it, pain is it's generally the easy bit. It's the mental side of injuries, which is the hard bit. And being so naive, it was it was only my family that that really suffered that. So yeah, as I say, it's, for me, not too bad. But yeah, them on the other side, it's them that I've got to thank because it was them that had to wear all the rubbish and thankfully let me go and play again. As I'm sure that the first thing that they heard from me was wanting to play the following weekend uh, and they were probably thinking wrap me up in cotton wool and never let me play again so yeah it was a funny funny one really the lack of understanding probably really helped me if it had happened later down the line and I'd have been older or I'd have been later in my teens or early 20s I don't think I'd have been for, for playing again but you know being a kid and having the love, love for the game it was um, it was never really a an option to give it up. When you mentioned about it was a 50-50, what, what are you referring to? Life-threatening or...? Yeah, they basically just said going into the surgery to my mum and dad because it had been such a, a long well, five-day bleed. Um, it's quite a substantial bleed on the on the scans. They just said that, yeah, the 50-50 being didn't know whether I'd make it through the surgery or not. So again, this was all for me. Nothing. I I didn't know anything about this. By this time, I've been I'm asleep. Everything else, just waiting for the surgery. And they've been told that from the scan, as I said, fracture the skull. It split the artery. It had been bleeding out for five days, and there's now blood clot the size of a tennis ball between the skull and the brain. And if it gets to the shoulder one picture, I've actually got the images of the scan as well. The shoulder and the scan, and just said if it gets to the other side of the brain he's going to be dead or potentially brain dead. So if he does get through it, as I say, the 50-50, we don't know what quality of life will be there. What reflections do you have on all of that? As I say, people say that I'm brave to go back playing, but being naive and, and no understanding isn't really a brave thing for me. I think the brave people in this are my parents to, to allow me to chase my dream and, and get back playing. And um, within my family, it was just something that was bringing it back up for my mum and dad and my little sister, who was, obviously mum and dad came in the blue light ambulance with me. She was left at home with initially going to be my nan and granddad, my mum's mum and dad. And it was, I, again, I only found this out 10 years later, probably, well, not even 10 years later, 15 years later in my testimonial year when obviously people asked a few questions about it and my mum and dad shared a bit more with me my sister did and my sister shared the fact that when my nan and granddad came around to look after her, my auntie, my mum's sister's also a nurse and she came around and said, mum and dad, you, you best go and look after your daughter. It's not, it might not be very good this. And obviously for my sister at the time being 11 years old, she just wore it all, took it all in stride and and just held, held probably all of the, the upset that she had 
and my mum and dad had about it, held it all back from me just so that I could do what I enjoy and play free and without repercussion, which, as I say, is that's a, such a brave thing to do, which I now understand being a parent myself. Well, I think moving on from that, I think it's you talk about your family, your mum, your dad, your sister, and how close the relationship was then and still is and the, the things that they've helped you through that you did and eventually you went on to play. You've obviously, as we spoke about, 32 and still playing at the highest, highest level. But during your professional career, especially early on, you had lots of setbacks and injuries and you had several ACL tours, issues with knees. And in helping you through those challenging periods, how important were the people around you, the club, your peers, and, and again, your family support? Yeah, massive. Um, you know, I think we we all put on the front probably when we're around when I'm around the when I was around the club and, and injured um, to say that you're all right. I think that's something that we probably you know men we're not we're not very good at for being vulnerable. Um, and my family, you know, they see my vulnerability. I know after suffering my probably a similar idea that the first ACL I had, I was only 17 years old and I had no understanding, young lad. I know I'm out for six months, but I get the surgery, I get fixed, I get back and off I go again. That kind of process is how I saw it. Um, upon having my second one, I'd have been 23, 24. And again, same kind of idea, you know, broken, fixed, off you go again. But obviously it was a bit harder to take because I knew the challenge that was ahead. And thankfully for for myself at that point as well, not just that my, my support network that I always had in my family, I just had my missus, who's now my wife, to help me. After returning eight months later, I, I redid the left one. And then, to be fair, that was completely broke me mentally. Mentally, I was done. I was ready to give it up on hearing the news, kind of hung up on the physio, burst into tears and just kind of said, you know, that that's me. I'm I'm done. I'm not putting myself through that again. I don't want to do it. I just couldn't fathom taking on that challenge again. And again, I've been them people that was what really helped me. And you're not always in the best headspace as as the person suffering that injuries and you kind of put what you're struggling with on the, the people that you love. And you know it it can strain other some of them relationships at times and, and when you it's not until you leave that hole and move forward and past it you realise you know what kind of state you were in at times with it and um, and how important it is to have those people around because as I said the, the third knee was one that the injury probably hurt the most because it was the one that I understood the most and it was the one time when I thought God it's not as simple as broken fix it off you go again and you're ready to roll and bizarrely, it was probably something my dad said to me when I told him I was quitting and I was done. He was someone that, as I said, he's had such an impact in getting me going into rugby, getting me into professional. And I was 24 years old and, you know, thinking this is me, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And probably had a lot of people suggesting the same externally. And it was kind of a funny one that I obviously burst into tears um, spoke to my mum and my dad came downstairs and when he spoke to me and I told him I was quitting, he just said, yeah, 
no worries. Like you don't need to prove anything to anyone. And that was that. That was the conversation over. And it was really weird because from my dad, of labourer, bricky, worked on site all his life, tough, tough man, and for him to kind of just say that to me it was, it was probably in the weirdest way. He, he probably didn't mean it to strive me on, but in him actually allowing me to show some weakness was probably one of the biggest things that made me give me a kick up the ass and think, you know what, like. I'll get the surgery and we'll see where we go. Because initially I was going to get the surgery just more for the future and think I can have a kick around with potential kids in the garden and everything uh, without my knee collapsing. Um, but yeah, that little bit just kind of had a bit of a flame in me all the way through my rehab to, to kind of push me on and strive to get back. And, you know, I'd go around again about that support network. Mum and dad were there, my sister, and then... As I said, my missus at the time was living in London and she was straight back on a on a train and straight straight to the door and obviously more tears again um, with what was to come ahead. So yeah, that support network, you you can't really talk enough about it in positive light because it is, you know, they're the people that you have the extreme ups and downs in sport. And at the end of the day, you want to share each and every bit with them. Even the extreme, extreme lows, like in a weird way, when you look back on them and you're able to look back on them in hindsight, they're all for a reason. And the people that, as you say, friends and, and lads within the team as well, the people that really look after you and get an arm around you, the people that you're still in touch with to this day because they do mean so much. You mentioned uh, that third third ACL, you were out for, you were out for over 12 months and... I remember this vividly. <laughs> Your first game back, April 2016, against Leeds. Come back in, time out, and scored two tries. One of them pretty early on in the game. And it was there was quite a, a big deal made out of it on Sky at the time because of not just your reaction of obviously, obviously pure elation, but of the people around you and your teammates and how they responded to... To having you back in the in the side after such a difficult period, but that game, those two tries, and after everything you'd been through, how special was that? That honestly is, I kind of still say it to this day, even despite everything. Like that is the the greatest feeling that I've ever had on the rugby field. Um, I think it's something that'll I'll never be matched uh, again for me. It's been fantastic to win competitions, but that kind of just emotion release of, I suppose, all the shit, all, you know, all of the, the tears, the hard work in the gym, the stuff that no one sees, but yet people want to be calling you and kind of saying that, it, that you're at the end and all the rest of it. And even myself in that regard, having that mindset at times, of just having that huge release was was incredible, really. Like I said, personally, on a rugby field, it's never been matched again, and I don't think it will. I think if I could have bottled up that feeling, I would have done. And in a weird way, when I returned, had that return, scoring on my first touch, getting the getting the win in the end, and I did kind of think, you know what, I could just retire healthy now because nothing's ever going to beat that. Like, I genuinely thought, like, that's... You know, it it's never going to get any better than that. Obviously, 
different things have happened on the field in terms of winning things, but that actual emotion that I had, um, yeah, was incredible. And the hardest thing was obviously scoring five minutes in. I had to hold it together for another 75 minutes and it was probably the end of the game then when I when I got around, again, that, that huge support network and being able to share it with them um, after they'd shared all the rubbish with me and helped me so much. You know, that was probably the biggest thing for me. Um, and I, <laughs> a funny one, probably not many people know. My sister, obviously younger sister, as I've already said, she has always kind of followed my rugby Um She's three years younger than me. She's always followed my rugby. And at the time, she was working only half days as a hairdresser. So she was like, oh, I'll just come and I might look into being um, the mascot because they put an advertisement for the mascot in the um, out there. So she was like, I come every game. I can mess around. We used to go Florida as kids. She was like, I can be like one of the things, the characters in a suit. I can jump around and I can get paid to watch you. So it's, it's win-win for me. Um, and then obviously I got injured, missed quite a bit of time. and She was actually being the mascot that day. So a funny one was that the fact that obviously Mrs. family in the stand all together, were able to share all of that together. But yeah, on the pitch, there was me trying to hold it together and my sister just sobbing away in the suit. So at the end of the game, obviously I knew I couldn't get up into the stand to, to see everyone that was up there. But I knew my, I'd seen my sister go down the tunnel before me and dressed, obviously, as the St Bernard dog and kind of found out where she was, missed, missed the talk at the end of the game with all the lads and kind of just went, found her and cried my eyes out into a, <laughs> into a, a, a St Bernard costume um, of, the, of the boots, the dog. And that was kind of a massive release for me. It's just holding together all the way through and then I've been that little moment something yeah that I'll, I'll never forget and obviously with the third ACL I kind of now mentioned this it was even more satisfying the fact that for the first 10 weeks of it I was so ill because I turned out I'd got an infection during the surgery and spent eight weeks on the drip as well off the back of it after two more clean outs and being told that you know if the infection gets onto the the graft site you're going to need a fourth recon so it was all kind of everything all at once in that that one moment in, in 2016, as you say, against Leeds was just the biggest release of of all the emotions that I'd had. What a wonderful story, Johnny. The, you can actually feel your words in it. It just shows how much emotion goes into this after having worked so hard. Because nobody, unless you've had an ACL or a, a medial collateral ligament or any injury where you've sustained a... Not, not a life-threatening, but a career-threatening injury. Nobody knows until you've had it how much graft work that goes into into the prep to get back. And having not just one, but three three ACLs and come back from that. So what is it about Johnny Lomax that loves to push beyond personal boundaries? Um, I honestly believe it. I'm probably can be a bit awkward at times. And I think that I just like trying to prove people wrong. I think it's as simple as that. I think I don't like being comfortable. I like people, I like a challenge. I like people challenging me. I like people to question me. Although at times it hurts a bit and you think, well, that's not very nice. 
in the back of my mind, I've always got that that burning sensation, a bit like when my dad said, it's all right, you don't need to prove anything to anyone, was kind of, I'll show you. And I kind of think that carrying a bit of that chip on my shoulder has probably what's allowed me to, to get back from some of these things and, you know, being written off or unfairly or whatever way it might be, or maybe unfairly disregarded at times, whatever it might be. I think that that's the biggest thing that probably does drive me is, is that little chip in the, in the back, just going, no, I'm going to show you. And that coupled with obviously the love for the game that I grew up with, I think is probably the bit that just somehow keeps managing me to, to keep pushing. And I think that probably without that mental side of it, as I said, I think I'd have, I'd have really struggled because I do think that the mental side of any injury or any setback in sport, whatever it might be, lack of form, anything, it's the mental side that really gets you out of it. And luckily for me, I, I had a bit of steel. Well, yeah, considering you'd uh, you'd been written off after the the third one, you've not done so bad. As we <laughs> talked about April 2016, come back six years. Since then, you've been a constant presence, pivotal player in a in a Saints team that's up to now won three back-to-back grand finals, Challenge Cup, and you've had several club awards and individual awards, Players Player of the Year, Player of the Year, which I think Players Player of the Year is probably always a big one because the peers that look so fondly on what you've done, and you were also named uh, a Man of Steel finalist in 2021 for the the best player in the competition and you get written off to then have come back and deliver such a high level of performance take some doing you talked about the mental side of it but what what have you done to deliver such a consistent level of performances at the highest level over that extended period probably that kind of probably not realizing you know how much you love something until it's gone was a big thing for me and I've been that like I said that initial 2016 emotion release of that being happy with that and I was to be fair getting to the end of 2016 I was happy to to just get through the season healthy I think a bit of it for me was I got through the whole season as daft as this sounds I got through the whole season without stepping off my left foot because I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to put my left knee in in jip but I got through the season being able to do this and just playing smart and, and having that real awareness of my body and where it is um, in space. And it was when I went to, I got picked for England in 2016, off the back of just in the same season I returned from this third ACL. And, you know, it was something that I thought England was done, gone, something I wouldn't ever get a chance to do. And when it came upon me, I didn't really know how to take it. Um, you know, the injury and redoing it and, all the worries I've kind of developed probably now understanding again is a bit of anxiety and, and struggling with bits of it. Um, and that's why I was well aware of how my mental side needs to be now when I'm playing and probably developed a bit of anxiety and all the worries that I've got. And I went to, got picked for England and kind of emotional wreck, buzzing to be picked, but probably a bit scared. You know, I was... I was happy, as I said, just to get through the season healthy. And it was a bit of a, a worry and a stress that all of a sudden that relief of getting through the season was, 
I've got to go again now. I'm I'm playing in a I'm playing in a test series in something that I thought had never come. And so I went to the England camp and Wayne Bennett, obviously legendary coach within rugby league, he pulled me over at the end of one of the early sessions that we'd had and just kind of said, like, <laughs> in a bit of a blunt way, in a nice way, it was like, obviously now I realise it's kind of like, what, what's your problem? And so I kind of, he said, what's your problem? You're kind of always messing around, you're, you're messing with your knee, you're doing like little exercises, you're doing all little bits, like, what, what are you doing? And I started telling him, you know, my story. Um, and where I'd been the last two years. And he went, yeah, I know that, but what's your problem? And I kind of thought, what, what do you mean? What's my problem? Like, I'm, I'm trying to tell you. And all he said to me at the end of it was, you're a good player. You need to take your handbrake off. And it was something as simple as that. And like I said, not going, not stepping off my left foot and all the rest of it. I think what's allowed me to, to get back to playing consistently is, just having confidence within my, within my body. I felt as though my body was going to let me down. And when I was coming back from, from the injury and all the rehab, all I kept thinking was, if I can get back playing, I'll be fine because I won't forget how to play rugby. But I was always worried about my body letting me down. And I think the more games I put together and having that great support group and, and great support team around me to keep me healthy, I kind of... The more games I played, the more confidence I got. And at the end of the next season, I was kind of, instead of being relieved, it was more of a, this is a missed opportunity here. It's another year without silverware. And I think that drive then of knowing that, as I said, you don't know what, till it's, what you've got till it's gone was, I might miss the boat here at achieving the things that I want to achieve. And it was kind of from that drive that I kind of set about you don't know how long you're going to have playing, so make it count. And that was probably something that was different for me. And again, having them couple of doubters with some of the biggest drivers that they have moving forward. It's amazing, isn't it, Johnny, when you, if the body and the mind are in alignment, then something happens. You know, there's a freedom, there's an, you can go out to express, there's limited pressures upon you because there's a trust in actual fact, it's we go into a stillness in the head and we just play. So yeah. when we haven't got that alignment, then there's that little doubting question in your head, body, is my body going to be right? Uh, unfortunately, that that's it's in a good place now. But going through those experiences that you've had to endure, you'd never known. It's amazing, isn't it, how you've come back from so many, well, career threateners you had the you had the uh you had the head injury and then the three ACLs which would have been a career fit that would have done one or two players but you've worked extremely hard to get back which is which is commendable to you so credit to you now I'm going to change tack slightly here because I was enamored by a conversation and uh it was an interview actual fact that you did after the Leeds game you played and straight after the you're in the You've been interviewed by Sky, uh, where you talked about recognising cues and triggers that helped make decisions as first or second receiver from the rook. What was so 
poignant about this is it's not just you were asked these questions, it's the specificity, the detail that you came up with just off the off the scale. So things happen so quickly during the game. So what is it you look for to make such quick decisions as a player? Uh, I think, obviously, within rugby league or probably within most sports, um, you have your kind of structure that you fall back on. And your structure's there, for me, is, is something to fall back on. I know some people kind of... We like being organised now amongst sports. Sometimes it can become just... the People just do the structure for the sake of the structure. But having the structure in place can create opportunities and then from that it gives you the freedom to to go and roam and see what's there and so when I'm suppose when I'm looking for defensive cues is you know, in terms of rugby field is or in anything is generally everyone does similar stuff and you work within your kind of units 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 and if you have generally if I can look up and have eyes up I'll always think count numbers how's the spacing where is the space on the field? That's where I, that's where the ball needs to get to. Sometimes that might be, I might be stuck where there's no space, go the other way kind of thing. And the counting the numbers, but within the units, you can kind of work out. You not generally know who's going to be stood in front of you. And so if he's not there, that quick look of numbers, right, or you're not there, or actually you're outside me, right, you've got, you've got plenty of numbers to defend this, or vice versa, you're inside me. You might be a bit short, but then the ones, the, a big cue is when they're not there and then when them people aren't there, you kind of have that recognition of is he comfortable there or is he uncomfortable? And generally, I think something that definitely helped me from a young age was playing a lot of positions when I first came into the first team. I know people talk about being a jack of all trades can hold people back within sport, but I actually think that until you find that home, or as a young lad, until you're a, a, a cemented starter, having that freedom to learn different trades can be massive because then you've got an understanding of how when you feel uncomfortable in the same position or when you feel comfortable or where you don't want to be, where you're happy to be. And again, when you get that, where's my man in front of me? Who is it? Oh, that's such a body. Is he uncomfortable? Is that a one-on-one matchup that you fancy? And all of a sudden, then them little bits can allow you to go off script, play the freedom, play what's in front of you, and not just rely on the structure. Sometimes the structure can actually be much as a a mirage, really, to to cause a confusion in the in the setup of the defence. Because as I say, everyone has a structure. What? The game that I probably always try and play amongst it is if I'm attacking is, is chicken. Um, I'm thinking, how can is how can you play chicken and make the other person in front of you feel uncomfortable? How can you manipulate, rather than being manipulated to as an attacker because of the defensive starting position, what if I manipulate your, your starting position and make, try and make you do something that you don't want to do before I touch the ball, or I might not even touch the ball, but opening up might bring another two defenders around the corner and you can go and play elsewhere. So allowing, I've got a couple of points here, which it's it's, I mean, it's really interesting here. We're going into the detail, which you really would love. So allowing the ball to travel a little bit further, a uh, little faint, that can 
take somebody or unbalance them, which which is a point you raise. But I've got a I've got a point for those who are developers of people, or developers of sportsmen and women who listen to this podcast. Where you you referred to playing in different positions here. The playing as a fullback, you might not have liked it at the beginning. You might not have liked it at all. But actually playing in these in positions that we're not comfortable with actually helps us to see different pictures. You're getting different perspectives. You might get more depth. Uh, you might have more time to be able to see things ahead of you. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, like I said, I think it's something that I know there's frustrations when you're a young lad. Uh, I've been there, as I said, I've been that kind of utility, tag, jack-of-all-trades kind of thing, and that jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none argument that you have. But for myself, within my first two years, or two, three years, I've played fullback, wing, centre, standoff, scrum half, hooker, and loose forward. So I've played seven of the nine positions on the field. And it kind of, as a young lad at the same time, you're excited, you want to play all the time. But when you see other people getting just that what because they can only play the one position in that one position that you might think you want to play and you're kind of thinking, damn it, I'm running here again in this position. You do have that negativity around it. But actually, again, the hindsight is such a wonderful thing is it develops you so much in terms of your understanding, first and foremost, as I say, you know, the demands on that person in that position. I think, you know, having played them, people say, oh, it's harder here, it's harder there. But actually, they've all got different aspects which make them difficult and harder, depending on the situation. And I think with that understanding, you also get such a great appreciation of the other players around you and what they're doing. So for myself now, being a halfback and kind of demanding people to be in position ready to attack, having done some defending in the middle, having done some defending out wide, I have an appreciation of, you know, how hard these boys are working in the middle. I also have the understanding of how difficult it is to meet your one-on-ones out wide too. And then obviously for the outside backs, and some of the wingers having them first early carries, how difficult that is and the demands that it puts on them because I've been able to do bits and bobs of it and having that appreciation, I think, helps you so much in terms of getting them to do the role and probably as a, as a leadership capacity as well. And I think having that understanding and appreciation together helps to drive more from the lads when you're playing alongside them. And also, again... Another positive of playing all different positions is just removing you from your comfort zone. I think it's something that it, it allows you to grow. It allows you to grow. If you're always comfortable, you're never challenged. You never, you never improve. As soon as that you're out of that comfort zone and you're thinking, flipping heck, here we go. You know, it's a challenge and you learn, you either sink or swim. And those that, you know, swim are the ones that end up thriving and continuing to develop and grow moving forward. When you talk about that challenge, Johnny, you playing all the different positions and then getting an understanding of what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable in those positions helps and enables you to recognise certain things that, look, the the centre player in this position, he's uncomfortable and I'm going to go for him. 
But as well as that, your role is very, very important in terms of directing other people. So you can recognize it, but what, what do you do and how do you do it? And what challenges do you face when it's off the cuff? You've got to do things very quickly to then direct your teammates and get them to recognize what you're seeing too. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think the, be- the best way probably to describe it at times is, as I've just said, the boys in the middle doing the majority of the, de- the defending, having defended there in the middle too. And obviously myself when I was there, being a smaller body within the middle, I definitely know how difficult that is. And so you know how hard they're working. So sometimes it's trying to play, as daft as this is, playing away from them to play back, to kind of give them that bit of a rest, give them that appreciation. Look, I've got you here. I'm going to I'm gonna push with you, mate. I'm going to push with you, mate. And then kind of help them, give them two or three plays to kind of get into position that you want them to be able to put on your play just by giving them a bit of a rest, by doing a little bit of their, their job. But again, once you go into that off-the-cuff period, generally, as I said, you have your structure there and then as a half or whatever, you've got that freedom around it. So what I'll try to do is if the lads, you know, middle boys, as I use an example, are tired, I'll try and work out the shape based on their starting position rather than asking them to fall into line with myself so that they become effective parts rather than being ineffective because they can't get back onside behind the ball to run the play. And so that off the cuff kind of falls, I suppose, like you said, that direction off the cuff is where am I moving parts and how can I best utilise them where they are now on the field? Now in an ideal world, they'll be exactly where you want them to be and you can have the meter there and run the structure that you want to and then or have them ready to adapt. But kind of them working off the off the cuff bit is working where they are there and then what's going to be most effective with the freedom around it. You know, one of the greatest challenges for youngsters, which you've mentioned, is playing out a position that can actually but not know what the learning is going to come from that. You'd mentioned earlier also about your dad, when you first started playing at the age of five at, at Oral St. James's and, and playing the year up. So that, so you're playing against older players and whether it's what we class to be real rugby or not, it's rugby, it's competitive. It is what it is at that point in your development as a young boy. But during a recent conversation with you, you, you shared an experience of when you were seven years of age, when your dad would bring you off if you scored three tries. In your opinion, what part of the game do you think this constraint enables you to develop? Probably probably an unselfish side. Obviously, I wasn't so happy um, when he kept doing it. Um, but it was a real good learn for me, I think, and obviously something that's definitely helped me down the line. It's that I think you see it a lot in young athletes, young sportsmen, whatever it might be, that obviously... At a young age, the best ones are who seem to have the most joy on the field are, are the best athletes. And that's kind of how it, how it works. And, you know, within rugby and, you know, it's generally who's fastest, who's biggest. And you kind of work, work from there. And they're the people that, you know, were able to get the foot in the door. And my dad kind of said to me, as he said, you score three tries. If you score a fourth, you're coming off. So if I ever made a break after I scored three tries, he made me pass it to someone else. Um, 
So that would mean that I'd have to find somebody in space and, and give them the ball. And, you know, that kind of then developed further, then playing as a first receiver and everything else from that. And he kind of said that eventually the spaces will close for you. Um, and you'll have to, what you'll have to develop is how to bring other people into the game and find other people's space. And I suppose in a weird way, telling me that about not being able to sc- score more than three and having to find someone in space to score the try, kind of set that from an early age. I don't know if that's what, what he was thinking at the time. I think it was because he was coach and he didn't want to have any uh, parents having a go at him saying, your your lad's scoring all the time like someone else. Um, but even in a weird way, it probably did help me out in that regard. And you know, from there, it was kind of something that I developed this unselfish unselfish ability probably to to find other people's space and you know largely that's what my game's become about particularly as as a grown older and obviously playing as a halfback you know that's what what your job is essentially to set up play for for somebody else or find that bit of space on the field and you know it's something that yeah probably had a, a massive impact on me and it probably has helped me an awful lot the interesting thing about it is where you've got the, the constraint, you know, whether it's done consciously or otherwise, your dad's thinking about maybe the maybe the parent whinging and moaning because you're not giving the ball, you're, you're, you're arguing it, you're scoring all and getting all the limelight. In doing that, in having that condition put on you, it's getting you to look, it's getting you to scan, you're seeing things, you're taking pictures, mental pictures of what's happening in, in front of you, seeing a gap, you're going through it, you're inviting other your teammates to come in, you're seeing you're seeing the you know where the where the opponents are shaping up. But from a physical point of view as well, because there's another there's a physical element to this, where you if you're going down an avenue and it's not the right one, you can see you're going to be scoring and you get the you get the old pain threshold or oh, crikey of a score, I'm going to be brought off. And then you've got to change direction. And you've got to, you've got to go from left foot or left knee to right knee and soften, move and get changing the pattern, changing the speed of things. Do you think that has helped to develop your game as well? Yeah, definitely. Probably having that ability to change tempo, um, getting people to sink in out the line. Probably it's generally a way that you you look to find space. Again, you can't. As it goes back to what I was saying before on the numbers and the pictures, is you're trying to just manipulate certain bits, whether that be to create a three v two or two v one, whatever it might be. You're just constantly trying to manipulate, um, whether that be with the use of numbers or just as you've said there, that kind of one on one match up that you fancy and you think you can get to the next man and, and introduce. Again, I've probably never never even thought of it from that side, but that understanding of probably again where people are, and because David got me thinking a bit before too about the the organisation out and and the off the cuff, how do you how do you end up coupling that when you kind of organising the lads that are tired or in a different role, and how do they react to that off the cuff? And I suppose. I had a bit of a thing, I've been having a bit of a thing with that and it's probably the same thing is, you know, kind of where you're saying, coming off the gears, bouncing to the next man or playing up or down, whatever you're doing is, the lads around you have got to be able to react. I always ask the boys to rest in shape. So even if they're not involved in the play, 
find yourself a role where again you can impact the line so whether or not that be just standing wide tightening up playing at the side of someone so you don't have to be physically exerting we're trying to just stay mentally within it to to offer yourself and that can kind of it can be nothing more than a mirage sometimes for them once because I know where they should be resting within shape I'll ask some of the boys to control a certain area of field when it does become the off the cuff and then people react they react in the space where you know they should be because that's what you've constantly practiced and preached all the time from speaking to them and demanding in training is you ask them to constantly just hold their channel whatever it might be so then when you do go away from the shape structure go off at a tangent they still show up ready to play there that's what makes players like you the like a master locksmith you're unlocking doors because there's less stru- the structure but you are playing in front of what you need to do so pictures of what you see you might see it but then the real talented players change and they change decisions in a nanosecond because of what's happened and they recognize it so quickly who can come off script because that's what the moment needs yeah i suppose part in a weird way although it's that kind of the off the cuff is i suppose in some ways it's in your head obviously like you said the, the picture's changing all the time and actually your decision making probably within whatever period it might be can change three or four times um, based upon the picture that's in front of you but also running kind of that risk and reward in your head as well most people are coach similar things and kind of similar as I said before the units 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 you kind of ask the same things and as I say even if the one before you might not get them you've kind of stored that in the bank that you know that picture comes up again the pattern last time was ABC or the pattern was CDE and then you kind of see it again and then you think right that's where I'm going back to that because that's what we've got our part's the best and this pattern I keep seeing how are we going to manipulate that and that's kind of then your off the cuff comes from manipulating bits of your structure to fit that picture so even though it can become off the cuff again I suppose it goes back to a bit to David is you're going off script but you're still kind of communicating right to them I want you outside because in your head I've seen this pattern and think if they come with this again if he does this or if he comes off this foot that's where we're going the off the cuff largely can come through that risk and reward and you know what is the pattern that you keep throwing at me once you've seen it you bank it but actually see that the same pattern thing next time I have to throw it because there it is really really good insight and depth but I'm going to move away from rugby now so outside of rugby league you are you're currently studying to do a degree what is it in? yeah um, as I say after suffering the third ACL I was resigned to the fact as I say that that was me I was done um, and I started a physio degree, obviously having a love for sport and, you know, there's a potential to try and stay within sport. But, you know, as I, as I went on through it and there was, always, there was obviously always an interest in the body because of playing sport and PE and everything else that you kind of go on, go through with at school. Um, but as I moved forward with the degree, 
and obviously I started getting back to fitness, I was understanding probably a lot more about my body, as I say, and that what actually probably, like you said, the consistency was having the trust in my body and having the freedom in my body. And all of a sudden, with the help of, you know, the experts around me, I was able to ask them questions, understand more, and then almost know what needed to be done every morning before I got into training. And, you know, I've become, probably got a bit of OCD. I'm very particular. And, you know, I've always had that probably obsessive nature, but all of a sudden it was kind of, I understood why I was doing it as well, not just because someone had told me. And at the end of the day, now I kind of, again, I think a lot, and again, hindsight's wonderful, is that within sport, and to team sports particularly, because that's what I've seen the most of, is beginning of every year, we kind of, your nutritional talk, your sleep talk, and your wise to this. But then, at the same time, I always think, having an understanding of the body and the training, I know you won't always get the buy-in, from some players. But at the end of the day, if you want to be a sportsman, your body is actually your tool. It's not your boots. It's not. To go back to my dad working on site, he'll have to do things so that he knows how to work the tools on site. And I think it's the more understanding that I've had, knowing the intricacies of the body and and, you know, which muscles do this, which muscles do that, the activation, the understanding of the training. I think I was probably providing with all the freedom, confidence in the body to go out and perform. And I do always think that that's probably something that is missed, particularly to professional sportsmen, because we're very happy to be spoon-fed at times and largely, and for a large part of my career, probably just did as I was told, without really any understanding, just because... You trust the, the people, the experts, but actually having your own understanding of it as well can have such an impact. And that's what I did initially, as I said, started the physio degree to think I was retiring. But then as I got back playing and continued the physio degree, it was something that I found I really enjoyed and actually really beneficial in terms of my preparation and activation and even going out onto the field and, you know, my downtime and what I need to fix and, and how. Well, having the likes of, obviously having Nathan Mill around, who's the physio and there's many other medical staff that will be able to help support you on this quest to become more attuned to what's happening to your body when you're playing. Now, when you're playing, it's great, but elite professional sports must be difficult at times to switch off from. What things have actually helped you to switch off and relax, chill, and then get tuned in to the right moment when it matters. Again, a weird way, the, the physio degree and having the studying made me strive to, um, you know, something else to to do in my downtime. It was something, obviously, that I wanted to do. I wanted to do well in the exams, and so it gave me something to totally take my mind off it. Um, even though, like I said, it helps the body, but it took my mind off it, off the rugby, because I had to commit myself to 100% of the papers. You know, my two kids and my missus, you know, particularly my wife, she, someone that is fantastic because she'll talk to me about rugby if I, if I need to offload something on her, like I said, my dad as well, but she'll very quickly just, right, come on, we're going doing this and rugby's all, rugby's all gone and, you know, that's what she's fantastic with and obviously having the two children again and, 
and having the family, it kind of puts everything into perspective and weirdly then being able to switch off and, you know, knowing that, you know, for me, family's always number one is, it actually gives you more freedom on the field because, you know, it's it's not your be all and end all. It's not who you are. It's, you know, first of all, your son, husband, dad now, which is fantastic. But again, something else that my wife also brought into the family is a, a dog, which I was very against, I'll be totally honest. Um, the dog, the idea of it, I wasn't so sure. Now, probably my best mate. There were times, like I said, if I'm in my own head and, and struggling a bit, I'll just say, right, I need to go with the dog and it can be whatever time, half nine, at, half nine, half ten at night, you might just set off at Bill and Jill with the dog. Very, <laughs> I know it's a bit dark, but um, very often I kind of, especially after a game, I can never sleep. Um, Maybe because I can't switch off, maybe adrenaline, maybe caffeine, maybe a bit of all of them. You know, I can weirdly just settle with the dog and wander around and be one, two o'clock in the morning, come back and, you know, just feel more of a sense of calm. But again, I kind of touched on it a bit before. One of the other things that I came about it through the club doctor, but again, only realising, you know, what probably where I was at once I got through it is the anxiety side of things and, you know, I did have the, that catastrophizing, worrying mindset. And, you know, then that's why probably understanding things, as I say, the body helps me alleviate some of that um, in terms of my playing. But he introduced me um, to headspace um, and meditation. And then that's kind of something that you say it out loud and people kind of think, oh, you're humming to yourself cross-legged and, and all the rest of it. But... It's not. I think it's something that actually goes hand in hand with sport really well. And it's just about being in the now and being in the present and appreciating what's around you. Just the simple things, you know, kind of taking in. And it allows me on a dog walk or walk with the family. When we go out with the dog is sitting off in the fi- sitting off in a field on a dry day and just, you know, having that ability just taking what's around me is Definitely too. The headspace combined with the with the walks out in the in the green is um, definitely something that's you know I've, I've found has really helped me switch off from the from the sport and, and relax myself. But at the same time, also found it really beneficial to to aid performance too. I think you know you you alluded it to it yourself. You know when body and mind are aligned, it's um, that's when you're at your best. It provides that freedom. It allows you to react to everything. You're not overthinking things generally. You know, we talk about it a lot. Your best games are the ones when things just seem to happen and there's that sense of flow. Johnny, final question for you. If you had to describe yourself, what would you say? Hardworking, driven, honest, I'd like to think. Prepare to do the right thing on the field is that I'm, I'm there to do my best and people have got different abilities on the field but I think there's certain things within sport that you're kind of non-negotiables and they've got to be hard work and, and honesty for the and unselfish acts for the group. I suppose the way I'd look at it is if I ever wanted someone else to describe me I'd, I'd want it to be them words I'd want it to be the ones that are a reflection of the ones that 
I appreciate in people. I'd hope that I can replicate what what I'd like to appreciate in people, I suppose, is, is, is what I'm trying to say. What a wonderful answer. I, I've got to thank you. Uh, on behalf of David and myself and the listeners that will glean lots of detail around you as a, as a, as a man. And I think the biggest strength for anyone is to be vulnerable, to show vulnerability at times of a life where, where we need it. And whether we call it vulnerability or daring greatly, where we're exposing something to someone else that is close to us. So thank you ever so much for your time. Good luck in your future, whatever that holds, whatever it is, physiotherapy, playing rugby and playing rugby for as long as you possibly can to impact the game and to impact people's lives as well, may I add. So thank you again. No, thank you. Uh, I hope it was all right. Like I said, first, first one I've ever done, so a little bit nervous, um, but I hope it's gone all right for you. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.